Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, questions around Tammy Murphy's fitness for higher office, accusations from a former Governor Murphy campaign staffer on how the First Lady addressed sexual assault allegations. There are ways to be supportive of the administration and survivors. I did not see that from Governor or Tammy Murphy. Plus, Palestinian Americans here in New Jersey continue to grieve their losses in Gaza. I want to hear my uncle's voice. I want to hear my cousin's voice. I have it in five days. I don't know if they're alive or not. We don't know. And push for a ceasefire as pro-Palestinian students claim they're receiving death threats and calls for expulsion from school for their peaceful support. Students have expressed concerns about free speech because they believe their speech is being treated differently because of the message that they're conveying, that they're expressing support for Palestinians. And a $100,000 settlement between Bridgewater Township and parents of a black teenager and a racially charged incident at a local mall that went viral. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday night. I'm Raven Santana and for Brianna Venosi. First Lady Tammy Murphy's Senate campaign has hit the ground running with endorsements, funding and events. And there's been little pushback to her campaign except for some tough words from her opponents like Representative Andy Kim. But tonight the First Lady is experiencing the first major pressure early in her campaign. Katie Brennan, the former Phil Murphy volunteer who settled with the governor's campaign over allegations of rape by a staff says Tammy Murphy is unfit to run. Brennan claims the First Lady did nothing to support or comfort her when she came forward with her allegations, and she is not an ally of women. Senior correspondent David Cruz spoke with Brennan and explores how her comments could impact support for the First Lady's campaign. This is how most of New Jersey got to know me, as Mrs. Murphy, the First Lady. And serving in this role is the honor of my life. But more about that later. Any candidate for office would envy Tammy Murphy's position. Most county parties already endorsing her, huge financial resources, and a built-in platform to keep her issues and herself in the public eye. But if you look closely, there is some drag affecting the campaign takeoff. Some high-profile women with former ties to the Murphys are giving voice to those who they say still can't speak up. Given the structure, the political structure in New Jersey, it is extremely difficult for folks to say how they really feel. Katie Brennan, the former campaign volunteer whose sexual assault charges rocked the early days of the governor's administration, says Tammy Murphy doesn't deserve support from women, something she says she knows firsthand. There are ways to support survivors and to and to support the administration simultaneously. The late great Sheila Oliver, when she was lieutenant governor, the day that my story broke, she called me 
not only did she call me, she sent security to HMFA to make sure that I would not be harassed and that I would be protected. There are ways to be supportive of the administration and survivors. I did not see that from Governor or Tammy Murphy. Brennan joins Julie Reginsky, the former member of the Murphy campaign leadership team who had this recent assessment of Tammy Murphy. So you don't consider her an, an ally to women? No, I don't consider her an ally to women. In fact, I consider her a massive enabler of her husband and the, and the men around him who did everything they could to harm women. The First Lady has a record on her work for women's health, but also on the administration's handling of the state's women's prison and on conditions at the Murphy-owned women's soccer team. At the moment, she's ignored Raginsky and had this to say as part of a statement regarding Brennan's comments. We vowed never to let a situation like that happen again on our campaigns or in our workplace, she said. We created systemic change on Phil's re-election campaign and have done the same on this campaign. Throughout his administration and throughout his election campaigns, Governor and Mrs. Murphy have offered themselves out um, as a partnership, as a two-for-one deal, right? That's how, they've, that's how they've pitched themselves to voters and to the state. So I think it is legitimate to ask where Mrs. Murphy has stood on the major questions that they have faced during his time in office. Tell me how you are uniquely qualified and how your credentials show that out of all of the people in New Jersey, all of the women in New Jersey, it is you that we should be voting for. The Murphy campaign insists the First Lady has wide support amongst women who make up a major portion of party activists and voters. And until those whose opposition to Tammy Murphy, for whatever reason, feel free to speak their minds, that's going to be the assumption going forward. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. New Jersey's finance watchdog, the New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission, has voted in favor of joining a Republican state committee lawsuit against dark money group Jersey Freedom. Republicans accused the mysterious group of sending mailers and creating online and television ads, all to boost so-called phantom candidates meant to siphon votes away from Republicans who are actually running. And as Ted Goldberg reports, the lawsuit is also attracting some unlikely support from progressive third parties. All in favor, please say aye. 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 I also vote yes. Any, any objections? Okay, that passes unanimously. After about a half hour of closed door discussion, New Jersey's Election Law Enforcement Commission has decided to get involved in the Republican State Committee's lawsuit against the dark money group Jersey Freedom. It's a lawsuit that's also attracted unlikely allies in progressive third parties like New Jersey's Working Families Party. Today you are sending a very clear and decisive message that every group seeking to operate in our elections must be held accountable and must be held to the same standards. ELEC will join the lawsuit as an amicus party, offering experience and knowledge without advocating for a particular side. The GOP lawsuit alleges that Jersey Freedom violated campaign finance laws and ran phantom candidates in South Jersey on conservative-sounding lines in an effort to siphon away votes from Republican candidates who were legitimately running for office. We had a libertarian candidate here, Sean Peck, who once the mailer started hitting, um, said right away, I don't want anything to do with this, and he actually dropped out of the race and supported me. When organizations like Jersey Freedom materialize and start spending vast sums of money to create 
what we think are frankly deceptive situations, um, intentionally adding misinformation and confusion to voters' election day decisions. That's a problem. Millions of voters went to the ballots to determine control of our New Jersey legislature in November. And we firmly believe and saw that Jersey Freedom's actions last year made a mockery of our election laws and threatened to weaken our democracy. Senator Vince Palestino won re-election by a comfortable 14 points, despite facing off against a phantom candidate. But he says other phantom candidates played a role in GOP candidates losing in South Jersey. He also says ELEC needs to investigate Jersey Freedom. Obviously, anybody can start any group to support whoever they want. Um, but they were supporting somebody who wasn't even running, and they were doing it in a way to, to hide where the money was coming from. And so that's a concern for democracy generally, and that's why we're pursuing litigation and pursuing you know, the avenues to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Our organization believes that when an informed electorate is allowed to vote without manipulation or interference, we'll be able to achieve a, de a democracy that best serves the interests of the people of our state. Advocates for New Jersey's Working Families Party were happy to see ELEC get involved in the GOP lawsuit against Jersey Freedom, which has its next court date on January 10th. Interim State Director Antoinette Miles says we should expect more dark money in the future. More shadowy dark money groups are going to pop up in future elections, and they would take it as a signal to engage in, type of in these type of tactics moving forward if actions are not being taken. While Senator Palestina says state lawmakers might need to tweak campaign finance laws in the future. They just broke the law, but you know, if there are other disclosures that we could require of independent expenditures leading up to an election so people know where the money is coming from, that is definitely something that we should be looking at in the legislature. Jersey Freedom spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in state races this year before a judge froze their spending in early November. We reached out to Jersey Freedom for a comment on the story, and they did not respond to us. In Trenton, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Two school districts in Bergen County are the latest to abolish a controversial policy that would prevent schools from outing transgender and non-binary students to their families. Policy 5756 has been a polarizing issue in schools this year, as some push for LGBTQ plus student protections and others advocate for parental rights. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas has reactions to the repeal and whether or not there will be legal or legislative response to overturn them. Okay, motion carries. The Westwood Regional School District Board of Education on Thursday joined the ranks of districts repealing Policy 5756, state guidance that grants protections for transgender students. The Franklin Lakes Elementary School Board of Ed repealed theirs on the same day. The Roxbury Board voted to keep theirs, at least for now. In Westwood, familiar argument on both sides was heard before the vote. I don't know how a rational person can listen to that and think it's a good idea to keep a parent in the dark about the health and well-being of their child, which the language in this policy allows. We know that you will vote to pass this policy tonight regardless of how many of us speak out against it. So we won't. You see, we've already spoken at the polls, and the message was loud and clear. Our community doesn't want this. So you can pass whatever policy you would like tonight, because we will be back in January to speak to a board we know will listen. 
and we can't wait. High school senior Amara Geipel pointing out that three of the members voting for repeal were just ousted from their board seats in November's election. Garden State Equality's Lauren Albrecht says that although their voices are loud, parents' rights groups remain in the minority in New Jersey, and repealing these policies leaves educators, school districts, and LGBTQ students more vulnerable. The removal of 5756 doesn't automatically indicate that uh, a school should then implicitly be outing a student that's against a law against discrimination, which is really comprehensive in New Jersey. But removal of 5756, what it really does is put put school staff and teachers, particularly counselors, anyone who has contact with students in a really rough position. So there's not guidelines for them to navigate this uh, really delicate, really nuanced situation with. Sean Hyland from NJ Family Policy Center applauds the repeal and says we can expect to see more districts move in this direction in the new year. I think it's the first step to making sure parents are notified about their child's gender identity and, of course, social and emotional well-being and really kind of restarting the process again that schools are in partnership with parents and educating young people and the next generation for success. Right now, parents feel in some places that schools are not with them on this issue. I want to see them come together and work together. Michael Gottesman points out that these school boards are in the lame duck session and points to case law that limits what measures a lame duck board can pass. They're not supposed to be taking uh, measures like revising or removing a policy. And that was a decision of the um, Commissioner of Education in the state of New Jersey. He says there could be legal action taken if the Attorney General's office chooses to sue because these school boards are only repealing policies that protect transgender students. And there could be a legislative response to these districts dropping the policy. There actually is a bill out there right now. It would, in fact, codify 5756. But that bill is sitting out there right now. Just no action has really been taken on it. So in your mind, is the legislative response the answer? Should the state be requiring that districts adopt these policies? Look, home rule is the rule in our state. The issue here really is um, compliance with laws. The problem with a district that doesn't comply is the district gets sued. And whether it's a, a private lawsuit by a plaintiff who feels they haven't been protected is required, or a lawsuit filed by our attorney general, the basic result is it takes money away from teaching kids. And more specifically, spends taxpayer dollars on legal costs rather than funding already tight school district budgets, something Gottesman thinks is likely to happen as more districts move to repeal their policies. I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. Opinions here at home are shifting toward the war in Gaza. A new poll from the New York Times and Siena College showing that an overwhelming majority disapprove of President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas conflict. And a slim majority say former President Trump would be better suited to handle the conflict. This comes after Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's visit to Israel, signaling renewed support for the country's war efforts. Though Austin says, quote, protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. Despite the death count for Palestinians nearing 20,000, Israel today raiding one of the last functioning hospitals in Gaza's north and bombarding the south with airstrikes. As the violence continues, the push for a ceasefire here at home has only grown louder. Melissa Rose Cooper spoke with families here in Jersey who are not only mourning the loss of loved ones, but fear for those barely surviving thousands of miles away. I want to hear my uncle's voice. 
I want to hear my cousin's voice. I have it in five days. I don't know if they're alive or not. We don't know. Fears Najla says she experiences every day not knowing if her loved ones in Gaza will see another morning. Our family that are still alive have no water, no electricity, no food or, medic or medicine because of the blockade. We all know that they need food. We all know that they need medication. We see it. We hear it, you hear it in our voices, and you see it. But we're not letting it in. We as humans are making decisions on when these Palestinian people get to live or not. And we are standing here and letting it be. So she and other members of the Palestinian community are calling on President Biden and elected officials to demand an immediate ceasefire. Please save what's left of my family and the other Palestinian families who have been just asking for one thing for 75 years, freedom and equality. The Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE New Jersey, our New Jersey chapter specifically since October 7th, has been reaching out to each elected official in New Jersey, calling on them to support a ceasefire before the death toll had reached 20,000. Long before that, we've been calling on our elected officials to support a ceasefire. We've called them uh, Senator Menendez, Senator Booker, Pasquale, Mikey Sherrill, every single representative and senator. We've met with them and we've called on them. Yet these families say they're losing more and more members of the community by the minute. My cousin, Razan, her 12-year-old sister, Nuran, and my other cousin, who's a doctor, were all killed by Israeli shelling and snipers. Razan was the most beautiful little Palestinian girl who loved things like K-pop and Billie Eilish. Her and her sister's only crime were trying to get water when they were shot and killed by Israeli snipers. And my elderly uncle, who was seven years old, sitting in his apartment, was also shot and killed by Israeli snipers. Mohammed struggling to hold back the tears after he says an Israeli airstrike killed 120 members of his family yesterday alone. This is my cousin, Asma. She's an accountant. She got sister who's a dentist, sister's an engineer, and brother who's a lawyer. She got killed, and she has two twin, I mean two uh, orphan daughters. That's them, and that's them too. Full of life, very joyful, all gone. Just two days ago, I received a message from my other brother, one of my nephews, was taking his wife pregnant to the hospital with her mother to deliver the baby. They were stabbed by Israeli bulldozer. They stopped the car, and guess what they did? They made the bulldozer go all over the car and the people. They mashed everybody in the car. Everybody was mashed like in the street. Who can live like that? How much we have to take? how long we have to be silent and how long we need to call for a ceasefire. The families are expected to meet with Assemblyman Andrew Zwicker tonight to also ask for his support in a ceasefire as they continue to push for peace in Gaza. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper.
Some New Jersey high schoolers say they've been at the receiving end of death threats and calls for their expulsion from school for simply walking out of school to show support for Palestine. Organizers from West Orange and Teaneck High Schools recently held walkouts with around 100 participants at each. Now they are facing consequences they contend are more severe than cutting class for other reasons. And the students said there are more limitations placed on pro-Palestine speech than other political speech in their schools and communities. Hannah Gross, our education and child welfare writer, has reaction from students and joins me to discuss. So Hannah, tell me what types of threats are these students receiving? Yeah, so I mean on the most extreme end, some mm -hmm. of these students are receiving death threats and these are coming from people online like via text message, WhatsApp, um, so by unnamed people basically. And they've also been receiving calls for them to be doxxed, which would be like their information, names, address, those things shared online without their permission, calls for them to be suspended or even expelled from school. When we think about this type of pushback, it's not just from their peers. I understand some of these um, consequences put forth are also by school administrators. Yeah, I would say most of it is not coming from peers. It's coming from adults, a lot of adults in the community on different Facebook groups or people online who found the students' numbers and are texting them threats. Um, from adults? This, yeah, adults. Wow. Um, they said most of the pushback has really been coming from adults, not students. And within the schools in West Orange, at least, um, the school did push for the protest to initially be delayed. Mm -hmm. um, and they say that was to promote student safety and make sure they could have the adequate amount of security on hand. The students also say that some of the pushbacks they're facing from the schools after the protests have already occurred are more severe than students who might have cut class for other reasons, such as past protests, or if you're just missing class because you don't want to be there that day and maybe left school early. Do you feel like, um, you know, I think actually it's important we clarify the ages of these students because they're minors. Yeah, I mean, most of the students I spoke to were under 18. Um, wow. So they're just teenagers who are um, standing up for what they believe in and facing a lot of consequences and pushback as a result. I read in your article, I think this is really interesting. One student said, if this was a pro-Israel walkout, I feel like it wouldn't be postponed or had any pushback. Are some schools allowing pro-Israel protests and not pro-Palestinian? So there haven't been any pro-Israel protests at school that are similar to these two pro-Palestinian protests where I covered. Mm -hmm. um, no school walkouts that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, but there have been community protests normally organized and led by adults in which students are participating. Um, so it's hard to compare the two of them because one is happening on school time, on school grounds, and the other one is more of a community event. Here's the thing. Do you think students feel like this is a violation of free speech? Yeah, I mean, students have expressed concerns about free speech because mm -hmm. they believe their speech is being treated differently because of the message that they're conveying, that they're expressing support for Palestinians, that it's being treated differently than, say, in 2018 when students walked out of school as part of the March for Our Lives or protests for Black Lives Matter or some other causes that have led to student activism in the past. And then lastly, what's being done? 
with students who are being threatened. I mean, how are these schools handling this? Yeah, I mean, the schools said they're committed to protecting their student safety, and I know some of the local police departments are also investigating these okay. threats, so they say they are taking them seriously. Yeah, so there are consequences for people who are doing this. Mm -hmm. All right, Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bridgewater Township has reached a proposed settlement more than a year after police came under scrutiny for the response to a fistfight between a black and white teen. The scuffle that went viral on social media shows Zakai Hussein, a black teen, being pinned down and handcuffed by police, while the white teen involved was seen seated on a couch. The incident drew national attention after allegations of racial bias surfaced. Neither teen was ever charged for the fistfight, but officials banned both boys from the the mall for three years. An attorney for Hussein filed a complaint against Bridgewater Township claiming negligence and discrimination, asking for more than $100,000. The family is scheduled to appear in court on January 30th for a settlement hearing. In our spotlight on business report tonight, a major offshore wind project off the Jersey coast has taken a big step forward. Federal regulators on Monday announced the Atlantic Shores South project, which is part of the larger Atlantic Shores development, is not likely to jeopardize the existence of endangered whales, sea turtles or fish in the area. Still, the feds acknowledge that marine life will experience some adverse effects from the project. Atlantic Shores South will be built off Atlantic and Ocean counties. The closest turbines will be about 10 miles from the shore. Construction on Atlantic Shores South is expected to begin next year and could be online by 2027. It will generate 1,500 megawatts of electricity, enough to power more than 700,000 homes. Opponents of offshore wind have attempted to tie recent whale and dolphin deaths in the region to the developments, but scientists have said there is little evidence to back those claims. Turning to Wall Street, the markets continue to rally. Here's how they close today. That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Raven Santana for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you right back here tomorrow night. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Have some water. Look at these kids. What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member.